having been given victory over all of his enemies, David now concentrates on building the house of God. But never would he have imagined that a man from Tyre would come to his aid. This is the ninth sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Roll covenant reading coming from Second Samuel in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons. And they built David in house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. Peter writing in his first epistle, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through verse 10. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, speaking of the church of Jesus Christ, he says this, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, The stone which the builders disavowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which were in time past... We're not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. The one who has told us that he is the chief cornerstone given to us that we would now obtain such a mercy by the grace of our God. Not only is Israel now united unto a godly and capable leader in David. They are strengthened at this point in their history. They are strengthened to the point where they are able to take the stronghold of the Jebusites and make it the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. It seems as if this was David's mission all along. From the moment that he beheaded the giant Goliath of Gath, I believe David had Jerusalem in mind. And by presenting the head of Goliath first to the army of the Philistines, and then in a bold and I believe a brilliant cunning move, David is able to utilize the Philistine intimidation tactics. It's as if he was telling the Jebusites that he would make it his life's mission. Now, he wasn't able to do it then. He was still a young shepherd boy, yet very capable. But he was telling the Jebusites by bringing the head of Goliath, as if to say, I now have defeated the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, I will now make it my life's mission to take the city 
the city of the Jebusites and make it mine. It will be the city of the Lord, the city of Jerusalem. So that was his life's plan. He had a mission. He knew where he was going and he knew how to get there. And it was all for the glory of God. And that was his focus, the glory of God. He wasn't doing it for David. He was doing it for God. And his focus was always Godward. His life's mission statement, his life's goal was Godward. This is a man who had the stamp of Christ upon his heart and he knew what he needed to do for the glory of God. As the newly appointed and ordained king now of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, beginning with the conquest of Jerusalem, David advances both his kingdom's influence and his kingdom dominion before God. In the name of God, for the glory of God. And by his conquest, by his conquest and by all of the conquests that God had given to David, his royal authority, David's royal authority, had reached many of the surrounding territories. And that's what happens when God's people are faithful. They become renowned among the pagans. They become renowned among the people of the nations. Their influence, their integrity, their righteousness is spread abroad. And by this time, David's influence, David's authority, his, his conquests, his renown, his righteousness, all that he had done and all of this for the glory of God, finally reached other nations of the, of the known world, especially to Hiram, the king of Tyre. And now it's highly likely that this king, the king of Tyre, was not only an admirer of David, but it seems as if he was also a worshiper of Yahweh. So much so that he offers not only his right hand of fellowship to David, but he offers his assistance in building the temple of God, in building the house of God, in building David's house. So what we have here in Tyra's king, in Hiram, is a man of action. Notice the scripture is not saying he sent messengers with messages to David. He sends much more. And Hiram, king of Tyre, verse 11, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, carpenters, masons, in order to build the house of David. So here what we have is, in this man Hiram, we have a, a great king in his own right, sending messengers to this new king, offering this new King David, who was glorious in his own right, David as well, assisting in building a great house for the glory of God, for David, and for all of Israel. So again, here we have a man who's not about talking. Here we have a man who's about doing. Here's a man of action. He doesn't merely offer David encouraging words. You know, David, really like what you're doing, we'll pray for you. He puts feet behind those words and offers concrete assistance. Concrete solutions backed up with concrete assistance. James takes note of this philosophy when he rebukes those that say much and yet do nothing. Notice James chapter 2 beginning in verse 15 and following. Notice what he says. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. 
Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Here's a faithful man. Hiram, the king of Tyre. A faithful man going to put action behind his words. And this act of both kindness by this king and a willingness to work must have been a great blessing and an enormous encouragement to David as if God himself had sent him an angel from heaven to assist in his work. There is another aspect of Hiram's character that should be pointed out as well. Hiram took notice of the great things David was accomplishing for God and he wanted to be part of it. He wanted to be involved. He saw what David was doing and said, this, this is incredible. How can I help? How can I be a part of this great work? How can I be involved? Nobody probably didn't say to himself. He didn't look to David and say, now, now there's a leader that, that doesn't need anyone's help. David, a great giant killer. Well, he doesn't need my help. No, he knew better than that because he was a king himself. He was a leader himself and he knew that whatever assistance a king would receive would be greatly appreciated. Furthermore, as an accomplished leader, which I believe Hiram was, he knew that he needed help doing those things that he either was unable to do himself or kept him from doing those things that only he could do. So he knew that it takes many hands to bring about a result. And this is what made Hiram both a great leader and a leader that could aid another great leader in achieving greatness for the kingdom of God. Note the use of the word messengers. Hiram sent out his men with a glorious message of gospel kingdom significance. In other words, I'm sending you a message that I'm on my way with help. He didn't say, you fight them off, I'll run for help. He said, we'll fight together. Now the word here that is used for messenger is actually the Hebrew word malach, which is translated literally as messenger, but most often it is translated incorrectly as angel. And yet the word from these men, from this man Hiram and these messengers, must have been to David a word from heaven itself. David, I'm coming to help. And so Hiram was not only going to send a letter of commendation and adulation to David for the great work that he was doing, but he was going to send real help, real concrete help. And as a king of his own nation, in his own right, Hiram knew what it took to build a great empire. And he knew that it took means. Monetary means. Physical supplies. Workers who were dedicated and committed to the goal of Christ's kingdom advancement. He was not simply going to pontificate about kingdom building. He was going to be a part. He wanted to be a part of that experience. An incredible, could you imagine, if you lived during the days of David, would you not want to be part of that experience, a part of that building? Now, of course, he could have used all of his goods for his own kingdom. Hiram could have said, you know, I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of carpenters. I've got a lot of masons. I'm going to use all of my goods for my own kingdom, as so many do today, building their own fiefdoms or their own churches. Not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of the pastor. 
But he didn't. He didn't use his money for himself. He went outside of himself and he took an interest in another man's work who had the obvious anointing of God and said, he's got the anointing. I want to help him in every way that I can and I will go to every expense. I will spend all of my wherewithal in order to help this man David. So Hiram takes an assessment of God had given him all of these carpenters, all of these masons, all of this wherewithal, knowing that it was his stewardship and he gave it to David. So he took an assessment of what God had given him and he understood that it was his only as a stewardship for the work which had the blessing of God and which was under the leadership of a man of God and that man was David. So here we have Hiram, a very practical man. A man who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. And this is what James means when he tells of such real practicalities when it comes to the kingdom's advancement. Without any regard to himself, Hiram extends the right hand of fellowship to David, showing his unwavering faith through his exercise of involvement in the work of the kingdom's advancement. Note what he actually does. This is incredible. And Hiram, king of Tyre, he could have been this fat slob sitting upon a throne, but he wasn't. He takes an assessment and he says, I'm going to send David messengers and I'm going to covenant with him and send him cedar trees and carpenters and masons who were skilled in working. So Hiram takes an assessment of his wealth and assigns it to David who had established himself under God as God's rightful king of Israel. But Hiram does something more than just send David help. You know, it would be easy just said, you know what, I have a lot of these things. I have the carpenters, I have the cedar trees, I have the masons. Okay, you go and you go, go ahead, go help that guy. He needs some help. Not so with Hiram. Because by doing this, he becomes just as much part of the kingdom as David was. In other words, Hiram owned the work. He owned the project. You know, beloved, when you give your tithe, or whatever you give as a gift above and beyond your commanded tithe, or whatever you, you expend, whenever you expend energy on the service of the church or the kingdom's work at large, you are engrafting yourself covenantally into the kingdom work. Furthermore, by doing this, whether you think this or not, by doing this, you now own a piece of the work. You can't say, well, well, this is uh, the pastor's work, or this is the elder's work, or this is the deacon's work, or this is this, or this is that. No, no, you are now yoked with that work through your support and your service. Because involvement should mean, it doesn't always, but involvement or the giving of the tithe means ownership. You must own the work. Then you will be a part of the work. You will decide that, that yes, this is mine as well. This is all for the glory of God and we're going to work together. Hiram wanted to be part of the great work that David had begun because he saw its motive and he saw its potential. He knew that David was doing this for the glory of God and he also knew of the potential that it had for the future. So what do we know about this great king? For surely he was one of the greatest kings on par with David and Solomon, David's son. So what do we know about him? Well, first, not only did he wish to be part of the great work that David had begun, this man loved David. This man really loved him and what he was seeking to establish. 
He knew David wanted to establish the house of God, and he loved David, and he knew what he was seeking to establish. He knew of his motives, to the point where he even supported the work generationally. Now that's something. Hiram isn't saying, I'm going to support David because I loved him. I love David, so I'm going to help him. I'm going to support David even generationally. And he does this through David's son Solomon. So by the time we get to the first book of the Kings, in Kings chapter 5, verse 1, we read, And Hiram, king of Tyre, the same Hiram, the same king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon. For he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was a lover of David. So this man is thinking beyond David. This man is thinking beyond himself. He's thinking generationally. Hiram loved David. In other words, there was a kindred spirit between these two men. They walked in company together because they had the same Christ, the same spirit, and this spirit was evidenced by the mission that they were part of. Secondly, Hiram was a future thinker. He was not only a future thinker, he was a future planner and a future preparer. A future thinker, a future planner, and a future preparer. In other words, he thought generationally. He considered what would happen behind his physical life and was preparing for the future. And by preparing for the future, he was acting upon the future by doing things which would be profitable in the future. Note also that he had enough cedar trees, he had enough rocks from a quarry that obviously he had for the masons. He also had trained carpenters and masons for both David and and years later for Solomon. How could that be? How could he have enough cedar trees for David's house and enough cedar trees for Solomon's house, enough masons, enough skilled carpenters? How could he have that? How could this be? How could they have enough trees for both David and Solomon years later? Well, this was only possible because as soon as they cut down the cedar trees for David's temple, they planted new ones. They were thinking beyond the day. They were thinking in the future. They planted new trees so that by the time Solomon needed the cedar trees, those cedar trees would be growing. Furthermore, knowing that the masons and the carpenters would grow old and eventually die off, Hiram obviously... He had to have some sort of an internship program for these tradesmen to train them for the next generation. He's thinking in the future. He's training for the future. He's looking for the future. He's thinking generationally. Economically, Hiram had to be very savvy in his trade deals and in his economic stewardship. Always looking forward into the future as to what might be needed for the work of the kingdom for the future. So what's needed for the kingdom in the future? That's what he's thinking. But not many of us think like that anymore. We're we're not future thinkers. We think in the present. Maybe we think what's going to be next week or maybe next month. But we're not thinking for 500 years from now. We're not even thinking for our great-great-great-grandchildren who will never know. What are we preparing for them? You see, our cues in our modern world are too often taken from the world rather than from the historical accounts of Holy Scripture. Third point, Hiram was also an entrepreneur. He was able to think out of the box in a cunning and creative way. 
when it was time for Solomon to advance the kingdom, Hiram again was upon the scene. Notice, he's looking for opportunities. He's not waiting for someone to say, Hey, Hiram, can you help me out? No, he was on, he was on point. He knew that there would be opportunities, and he was looking for those opportunities. What, what are we doing today? Are we looking for opportunities to serve? Are we looking for opportunities to advance the kingdom of God? Or are we just waiting for the pastor or the elder or the deacon to say, hey, can you help out with something? So he was had this entrepreneurship mind. So when it was time for Solomon to advance the kingdom, Hiram was there. And this time the scripture states that he had access. Now notice, when he brings David help, we only read that he has carpenters and masons and cedar trees. That's, that's pretty good. But later on, years later, what was he doing in between? He was an entrepreneur. So by the time it was Solomon's turn, Hiram is again on the scene. And the scripture states that by this time, Hiram had access to ships and waterways whereby he could bring the necessary materials for the kingdom's advance. Notice Hiram's power and influence at this point in Solomon's day is increasing, as well as his wherewithal with age. It's not diminishing. He's being more influential. He's getting more wealth. He's getting more power. He's always on the move. He's always thinking in the future. Notice 1 Kings 5, 1 and following. A lengthy passage. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon. For he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God had given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spake unto David my father saying, Thy son whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. Now therefore, command thou that they you me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy servants, according to all that thou shalt appoint. For thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to you timber like unto the Sidonians. And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over his great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sendest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea in floats unto a place that thou shalt appoint me, and will cause them to be discharged there, and thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. Now note the agreement. These men were trade partners. Hiram desired to do all that he could for the glory of the kingdom through Solomon's position, but he also needed provisions for his people. That was a reasonable request. This was a symbiotic relationship where they both ministered to one another in the building of the kingdom. Now consider for a moment the gospel lesson in this historical symbolism. Both David and Solomon typified the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both great types of Christ. Both men desired to build the temple of the Lord, the church of the living God, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God and its presence upon the earth that Jesus would wanted to build. 
The cedar trees and the trees of Lebanon symbolize the saints of God, as do the masons and the carpenters. Remember, Jesus said, I see men like trees. We're also building houses. Remember, Paul spoke of himself as a master carpenter, master tradesman. These are all provided by and trained by Hiram. He provides the trees. He provides the masons and the carpenters. Hiram may very likely symbolize the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is who trains us. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who trains the saints and brings them to the work of the kingdom while always having the future in mind. If we look at Hiram as one who planted the trees in the first place, then then we see that we are the planting of the Lord. Even as Hiram plants the trees, God plants us. We are the trees that are planted by the Lord. And in this way, even God the Father is in view. Notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.1 and following. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, so that he may be glorified. Now if you will notice, both God the Holy Spirit and God the Father is at work in these verses of Isaiah. It is also interesting to note that the name Hiram comes from the Hebrew root word, which means to be white as linen, perhaps signifying the white purity of the priestly linen of Yahweh. Hiram was also skilled in many things, which could be useful for the kingdom work. Not only was he a future thinker, a good steward of his economic wealth, a cunning tradesman, he also could work in other areas as well. He was also, as the scripture says, he was also a metal worker in brass. Now, whatever the kingdom and the temple needed, he was ready and able to provide for its glory. Notice 1 Kings chapter 7. Notice 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning at verse 40 and following. And Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowls of the chapters that were on the top of the two pillars and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters which were upon the top of the pillars and 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars and the ten bases and the ten lavers on the bases and one sea and one of the twelve oxen under the sea and the pots and the shovels and the basins and all the vessels which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass. In the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zotham. This man could do everything. This man was skilled in everything and he was ready to give everything that he had without hesitation and without holding back for the king of Israel. We need men like Hiram. We need men like him. And we need to be like him. We need to be prepared, future thinkers, ready and able to do whatever needs to be done, either great or small. We read nowhere. Nowhere do we read that Hiram was a great apologist or a great and noble theologian. We don't read anything like that. This was a man who was in the dirt. 
This was a man who knew how to get things done. Well, he may have been a great theologian and a great apologist. God is not focusing on that. God is focusing upon the concreteness of his faith. God is teaching us that the saints must be future thinkers, always prepared to serve in the building of the kingdom. So the lesson is very simple. The lesson is work. Get to work. Stop fooling around and get to work. Hiram saw a need and he provided for that need because he made himself available for that need. He was truly about his father's business, like the Israelites that later would build the wall in Nehemiah's day. Hiram and his men had a mind to work because they had the mind of Christ. You see, if you have the mind of Christ, you will have a mind to work for the kingdom. So I ask you this. Can this be said of you? Can this be said of us? Do we have a mind to work? Now I'll give you that same example that I give you over and over and over, just so that it finally, by repetition finally sinks in. Husbands, when you see your wife struggling with the children, do you assist her? Do you assess her needs and then minister to her by getting into the action, by taking the baby from her or the two babies or the three babies or the five babies? Do you get involved with the administration of the family and of the home? Are you sensitive to your wife's stress and her diligence in making a beautiful home for the family and for you to come home to? Or do you pontificate about the mysteries of the faith to your wife's disappointment just to show how wonderful a Christian I am? And what about you wives? When your husbands are in need, when you need to care for them, are you busy too busy to focus on their needs because you're on Facebook or social media, because you're on the chat room to the frustration of your husband? What about you children? All of you children. Pay attention, look here and heed what I'm about to say. Do you help your mom and dad by obeying? If you are a true Christian, you will want to be a good child, a good son, a good daughter. You will not want to stress out your mother and father. You want to do everything in your power that you can help mommy and daddy by behaving and then helping around the house. You just can't stand around waiting for either Prince Charming or whoever Princess Matilda comes to your doorstep and then you go off and have your own house. What are you doing now? How are you helping mom and dad? You can't just be running around wide open, always being reprimanded or reminded to do this or that and to do your duty around the house to keep order. What about single folk? You single folk, you're not off the hook either. You are not burdened with the care for a husband or a wife or burdened with caring for children. Your time is your own. You have all the time in the world. You're all about you. So what have you offered in the way of service? Now you young people, as you grow older, then we consider you as single people. What are you offering as far as service? And what are future considerations? How does the church survive when every man does what is right in his own eyes and leaves off serving the church in order to do their own thing. 
When you leave of serving the community of Christ to serve yourself, the church languishes. Hiram seems to be a bit younger than David since he spanned the lifetime of David and Solomon. His lifespan was, was long between David and Solomon. And why is that significant? Well, I believe it's significant because it shows us what a man of youth and vitality can do if he puts his mind to it. You know, we're not always going to be here to challenge you. Now, we get older too. We get feeble too. There will be a day where this pulpit is empty, at least from me. What will become of the future of the work that God has begun here So I believe that it's significant because it shows us what a man of youth and vitality can do if he puts his mind to it. And we saw this in David. David is a youth, a valiant man, understanding what it meant to serve Christ. And now we see it in Hiram. So here is a man that is going to steward his energy in conjunction with his wealth, position of power and influence for a cause that is greater than himself, even a cause that he might never even see the fruition of. He took his young life and sacrificed it to God. He put it on the altar of service and sacrificed it to God in the same way that David did. Who does that today? Who does that today of the young people? Sacrificing their life? No, they want to be on TikTok, on on Snapchat, on this chat, the other chat, and the other thing, and over there and over there and over there because they want to show themselves how wonderful they are, what a wonderful creature they are. So who does that today in the youth? So what you have today is uniqueness. Because only the people who have the stamp of Christ upon their heart will sacrifice themselves in their youth for the glory of God. How often I repent and lament that God didn't call me sooner. That I would be maybe as some of these young children who were raised in a Christian home, who were, were teenagers, who had the stamp of Christ, who who could do things in my youth. But now, playing catch-up, trying to do everything, because of the years that I missed, even as the Apostle Paul wanted to catch up, because he squandered so much of his youth. Who does that today? So you find in Hiram, the, the stamp of Christ upon his heart, here's a unique man of incredible integrity, incredible faith, devotion, Moreover, he was a productive man with a view toward God and His glory. He was a steward of his time. He didn't waste time. He knew how precious it was. He knew that it was a gift. He knew that it was God's investment in life because we only have X amount of time in our lives to steward. And once that time is gone, you can't save it up and you can't get it back. Verse 12 makes a curious declaration. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. It was all about the people of God. It was all about the people of God. When Christ established his kingdom, it's all about us. He is looking out for us. Can we not do what he has called us to do in thanksgiving? Now on the surface, this seems to simply state the obvious. With all that had happened in David's life, and now especially in the light of the Lord sending Hiram the king of Tyre to his aid for the building of the kingdom, David is secure. 
He is now without any doubt whatsoever that the Lord has established him as king over the entire nation of Israel, the twelve tribes. Now at one time, David might have doubted. Oh yeah, even the king of Israel doubted. He knew, even though Samuel had ordained him king, even though he had taken the head of the giant of Gath and brought it to Jerusalem to the Jebusites to say, I'm coming for you, while he was being pursued by Saul, he doubted. Time and time again, while he was running from Saul, he was full of doubt. He wasn't sure what God was doing. And his Psalms testify that he was a man on the run, not knowing if his life would be forfeited even even though God had anointed him king by Samuel. Yet the reality seemed to tell a different story. He thought that maybe he would be destroyed. But now that everything worked out, and here it is, God is now confirming that, yes, his ordination was true. Now everything had worked out. And the kingdom was beginning to thrive. David was the king. His, his, his influence, his, his, his fame was spread abroad. The kingdom was thriving It was advancing beyond its own borders and David was finally secure. Once secure, the scripture states that he believed that God had exalted him. Now while that was true, David was not being exalted for himself. Whenever we thrive, whenever we produce something, whenever we find that God has blessed us, it's not for us personally. It's for the bigger picture. It's for the glory of God. But David, as we shall see, is still only a man. He's not God. He's prone to this pride. And while the type of the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, David is still a man. And as a man, he's still prone to pride and the lifting up of his hardiness. And we must remember this as we continue to examine David, his life and his exploits. And so now exalted, prosperous, and secure. And in that there is a danger. David takes to himself more concubines and more wives out of Jerusalem. And herein lies the problem, verse 13. And David took in more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. Now certainly before he was king, he already had enough wives to satisfy him and prolong his generational legacy. He already had those, even before this situation unfolded. Why, the question then, obviously presents itself, why then, at this point, did he need more than he already had? Matthew Poole comments, he says, This may well be reckoned amongst David's miscarriages, the multiplication of wives being expressly forbidden to the king in Deuteronomy 17.17. The use of it seems to have been his policy, that hereby he might enlarge his family and strengthen his interest by alliances with so many considerable families. He was moving ahead of God. He was contriving a situation that God had said you are not to contrive. Notice, David knew that his duty was to write out the law of God in his own handwriting upon his ordination as king, according to Deuteronomy 17, where it says, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Now, whether he wanted to obey this commandment or not, it didn't really matter what he wanted. It mattered whether or not he did what the commandment said he would do. 
So it doesn't matter if you want to obey. You know, I, I, I love when people say, well, I really wanted to do this. No, you didn't. I know you really wanted to do it because you did it. That's how I know you really wanted to do it. So whether he wanted to obey the commandment or not, the end result is he disregarded it altogether. As with the judges of Israel, when they sought to establish a dynasty on earth in their own name, so too does it seem that David sought to do the same exact thing that was frustrated by God. Didn't he read his scripture? Didn't he know the history of Israel? Hasn't he learned anything from the past? Haven't we learned anything from the past? But God has said there will be no human dynasty given to men no matter who they are or how faithful or productive they are. The dynastic kingdom is reserved to one man and for one man and that man is the man Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And this is what John is referring to in the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 11.15 when it says, And the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It is his dynasty that he will begin. No man but the Lord Jesus Christ. It is at this time that the actions and decisions of David, which did not harmonize with God's law word, began to show themselves in a very negative way. In verse 14, God recites the names of David's sons and daughters as a result of taking more wives and concubines to himself. Adam Clark observes this. He says, Eleven children are here enumerated in the Hebrew text. Eleven more children. More wives. But Clark says this. He says, But the Septuagint has no less than 24. So between 11 and 24, the number, no matter which it is, is great. And so David begins to establish his house already on sinking sand, yet remains in the Lord's good favor by giving David the victory over the enemies of Israel. We shall continue to follow David in his conquests, his disobedience and discouragements, and we continue next in our series on Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.